Welcome to our 134th podcast, and the 104th as a City on a Hill Church. Pastor Mike takes us through Philippians 3 on this message recorded Thursday evening, November 14, 2019. In a verse-by-verse exploration and opening of this chapter, which he's entitled, Saved by the Grace of God. He reminds us to take our eyes off our current situation, no matter how bleak or delightful, and place them on Jesus. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, Paul had no problem in repeating himself. As a matter of fact, uh, he would tell them to rejoice back in chapter 2. We already saw that. He will tell them to rejoice again uh, in chapter 4. So three times he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. And he says, it's, it's, it's uh, no trouble to write the same thing again for me, uh, and it's to your benefit. It's a safeguard for you, he says, for me to repeat this. Obviously, they were probably struggling uh, with discouragement in this church. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit would not have inspired him to write that they need to rejoice in the Lord. They were probably struggling with uh, not having joy in their lives. They're probably burdened. They were probably uh, maybe overwhelmed, as, as many of us get in life, in the church, even as Christians. And so, uh, he says, uh, rejoice in the Lord. And, you know, repeating uh, things, I- as we read things in the Bible that are repeated, uh, it's not by accident. It's there because the Holy Spirit is reminding us and the Holy Spirit is instructing us on a point that, that God wants us to get. He wants us to, to learn this. And when the Bible repeats something several times, especially in the same book, but even in different books, uh, it's, it's not by accident. It's because God knows that that is an issue that the church is going to need to be encouraged and, and reminded uh, about. And really, it is the best way for us as human beings to learn is through repetition. To hear something again and again and again is how we learn things. Uh, and then we forget what we've learned. And so we have to be reminded especially if you're going to be a Christian for many decades, many years, all the way through your life, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that you're going to forget that you learned when you were 20, that you've forgotten when you're 60, and then you hear a sermon on it, and then you're reminded, and it's repeated, and and it's it's fresh, and it's new again. And so uh, that is always something that we um, must remember when, when things are repeated. You know, some people used to say that would, that would come to services or what have you. I've heard it many times where somebody would say, well, what are you teaching on this Sunday, preacher? What are you teaching on this Thursday night, pastor? And I'd say, well, I'm teaching through the book of Romans. Oh, I've already heard the book of Romans, you know. Uh, let me know when you're doing a different book and I'll come, come to your church. Uh, you know, I, I, I sat through Chuck Smith and I heard Romans in Costa Mesa when I was there in 1976, you know. And it's like, well, maybe God could tell you something different from the same book uh, in 2006 or whatever year it was. Um, And really, it's pride. It's our pride that would say, I already know that. Don't tell me. Uh, You know, don't don't, uh, 
Uh, don't repeat this to me. I've already, I've already learned that. Uh, that, is, that is our pride, thinking we can't learn something more because the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. So we could always learn more or be reminded or get something, glean something that we didn't get the first time because <clears throat> even though the Bible doesn't change, it's the same. You change over the years. I change over the years. And so we, we're different people than we were hopefully 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And so even if we learn something then, it might be brand new to us today. <clears throat> and it, it takes humility uh, to, to, to hear something a second time and to receive it and say, Lord, I, I, will, I will listen, I'll concentrate, even though it's something I've already learned, I've already studied this passage, I've already studied this book, but I know you could speak to me again, and I'm going to come with, with uh, anointed ears to hear uh, what your Spirit would say to me through this text or through this passage or through this verse. So rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> you know, that is, that is a command to us given over and over again, three times in this book alone. We're never called to rejoice in our circumstances. Uh, because sometimes you cannot rejoice in your circumstances. Your circumstances may be terrible, uh, and, and there's just no possible way to rejoice in your circumstance. Remember, he's writing this from prison. He's writing this from a Roman dungeon, and he's trying to tell them to rejoice because you know, they're, they're all bummed out, and, and they're free. They have all their freedom, and he's locked up, and he's trying to encourage them to rejoice. They should be writing to him to rejoice uh, when he's in prison, and he's going to die. He's going to get his head cut off. Uh, whatever you're going through, Paul was going through worse. We're going to look at that tonight. Whatever you're suffering, he suffered far more, and Jesus suffered far more than Paul. And, uh, and so it is, it is about taking our eyes off of our circumstances and putting our eyes on Jesus. That's the only way we can have joy, genuine joy in our lives, you know, not manufactured phony joy, of plastic smile, but genuine joy is when we, when we get our eyes on the prize. We keep our eyes on Jesus, and we get our eyes off of the world and the flesh and the devil and, and people. Uh, oftentimes, uh, people uh, will, will you know, bring us down or will pull us down, and uh, we just have to know that that's part of the journey. That's part of uh, this race that we run, but we are reminded and commanded to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2, he says, Beware of the dogs and beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, another translation of that false circumcision is, is mutilation, literally mutilation. Uh, and they translate it false circumcision. Now, he's going to start to talk about the, this group that was called the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers were, uh, church historians tell us and the early church fathers tell us in their writings, <clears throat> that they were a sect or a group of Jews who believed on Jesus. They said they were Christians. They believed on Jesus. But they thought you still had to continue to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And so basically, it was... Uh, it was Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus a kosher diet or Jesus plus only worshiping on the Sabbath day. 
Uh, and actually, when the Bible was written, the temple was still standing. The temple did not fall. Uh, uh, the Romans didn't destroy the temple until 70 A.D. under uh, General Titus, who went on to become the emperor of Rome. Uh, his father Vespasian was the emperor when Titus went into Jerusalem and destroyed it and burned it to the ground. Um, but so people even would go back to the temple when the Bible, the New Testament was written, and they would still offer animal sacrifices there at the temple. Uh, and, and then they would go to, to church, you know. Uh, and so it was, it was something where these, these men became very, very judgmental and very legalistic toward the Gentiles especially, uh, that they were not following the law. They weren't following Moses and Moses' teaching. They weren't keeping the law. And so Paul is about to give us his pedigree, give us, uh, uh, you know, what a great Pharisee he was, wh- how he kept the law, uh, how he was b- more zealous than all of, uh, of these legalistic people, uh, and, and how really it, it did him no good at all. Because we are not saved by our works, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's warning them beware he calls them dogs which is an interesting word because the dogs were what they called the gentiles so the pharisees and the religious jews called uh gentile people non-jews he they called them dogs they were unclean animals dogs stay away from them they wouldn't even touch gentiles uh in in jesus day and paul the apostles day they would have nothing to do with the gentiles they were unclean they were dirty they were filthy uh in in their minds and now you see the church is exploding, and it's not exploding with Jewish believers. It's exploding with non-Jewish believers, Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. Matter of fact, Philippi was a Roman city. And so uh, these are uh, primarily Gentile believers that are reading this letter in Philippi. Uh, and, and to this day, we still see that the overwhelming majority uh, of the church is made up of Gentiles, small percentage made up of Jews, Uh the literal physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these Judaizers, these legalistic uh, Christians who were Jewish, but they were also Christians, were putting a burden upon the people that was not from God. Uh, again, like having to you know, eat kosher, that you couldn't eat shellfish, you couldn't eat shrimp, lobster, you couldn't eat pork, uh, you couldn't uh, eat... Uh, beef with and drink milk at the same time just like over in israel today actually if you go over to israel all the food is kosher uh and and they still keep the kosher laws you had to you know you couldn't work on the sabbath day you had to worship on the sabbath day you couldn't do a whole host of things on the sabbath day or you would be breaking uh, the sabbath law and um, what paul is going to deal with here is the issue of circumcision and circumcision would have been one of the major issues that became a, a, a hot topic in the early church because the Judaizers were going around after a bunch of Gentiles would get saved, Paul the Apostle or, or Peter or somebody would go in and preach and all these Gentiles would get saved. And then these guys would come in after Paul was gone, after Peter was gone. You'd have this little fledgling church with all brand new believers and they would say, hey, I heard you believed in Jesus. Great, we believe in Jesus too. Wonderful. We're Christians, you're a Christian. Did Paul tell you about circumcision, by the way? Did he mention you must be circumcised in order to become a child of God? 
And of course, they were new believers. They didn't know any better. And so a lot of the Gentiles, all of a sudden, the rumor was like, hey, don't become a Christian. They're going to come over there and they're going to circumcise you. And literally, these were grown men. These were not little babies, you know, at eight days old. When people would, would get saved, they were following the apostles and they were telling them, if you don't get circumcised, you're damned, you're doomed, you're not saved. And so it became a huge issue in the early church. And um, if you want to turn back to uh, Acts chapter 15, well, let, let's, read, let's read verse 3 first. He says, beware of the dogs in verse 2, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision or, or literally mutilation. Verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So you have the false circumcision and you have the true circumcision. Now turn back to Acts chapter 15 and you see where the church sorted this out uh, early on in the history of the church once and for all, this argument about circumcision. Because, you know, once you start down that road of legalism, where does it end? You know, once you, once you jump through one hoop, they're going to say, great, now you have to only worship on the Sabbath day and you're not allowed to worship on Sunday. So then you have to worship on the Sabbath day. Great. Now you have to eat kosher. You can't eat non-kosher food. And it just goes on and on and on to where all of a sudden you're put back under the law again. And then why did Jesus have to come and die for the sins of the world uh, if, if we are going to be forced as the church, as Christians, to be saved by keeping rules and keeping the law? In Acts chapter 15, I'm just going to read this whole passage for you, uh, starting in verse 1 through uh, verse 20. And some of the men came down from Judea, Acts 15, 1, and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. 
But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He's quoting from Amos uh, chapter 9 here, chapter 9, verse 11 uh, and 12 in verses 16 through 18. So God actually said that there's going to be a day when all of mankind or the rest of mankind will seek the Lord and a whole bunch of Gentiles are going to be called by God's name. That wasn't ha possible. Uh, it was only the Jews who were called by God's name uh, up until the time of Christ and the time uh, of, the, of, of the church. Verse 19 says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols or uh, uh, things that were actually offered to idols as a sacrifice and from fornication and from what is strangled, uh, animals that would have been strangled, uh, and from blood, drinking blood or eating, eating blood. And so uh, basically, these are just things that, that God is, is instituting for that culture at that time uh, that, that he's trying to give them some sort of direction on, uh, on what to abstain from as uh, uh, Gentile believers. They weren't forced to keep the law. They weren't forced to worship on Sabbath day. If anybody says you have to worship on Sabbath day in the church, we're told right here there's nothing more we have to do. Uh, we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to have people circumcised. People don't have to uh, uh, eat according to the Mosaic law or the dietary standards. Th this is all that the Bible says here, and even this is very cultural for their time. It really doesn't apply much to us today. This was all applicable to 50 A.D., 40 A.D. in the early church. Uh, things contaminated by idols, uh, you know, if they would have taken an animal and they would have brought it to one of their Roman gods and they would have dedicated that animal to the Roman god uh, and, and, and sacrificed it and shed its blood for the Roman god that they were praying to, um, that would have been a problem for a Christian to do that. That was something that they shouldn't have anything to do with, going to other gods and offering sacrifices to other gods. Or if you know that this animal was sacrificed to a god, uh, and committed to that God, don't go to eat that food. Don't eat that meat. There's plenty of meat out there that is not sacrificed to one of the Roman or the Greek gods. Um, from fornication, we're still told in the New Testament uh, to this day to avoid fornication, aren't we? 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 5, and Galatians chapter 5 all tell us that we should abstain from uh, sexual immorality as Christians. And the last two things don't apply to, to, to us at all, but it did apply to them. And these are more like uh, for their own well-being, for their health. Uh, don't eat things that are strangled. Because again, some of the Gentile cultures, they would, they would sell meat on a street corner or a butcher shop, uh, so to speak, where they would strangle an animal. And, you know, when you strangle an animal, it, it, uh, it, it ruins the meat. That's why butchers will drain the animal. They'll slit their throat and hang it upside down. But if you strangle an animal and then try and eat the meat, you're probably going to get sick. Uh, you may die. Uh, and then, of course, blood is, is, is uh, very contaminated. And so, uh, you know, you, you, you would want to avoid, especially uh, meat that was un- uncooked or the blood that was uncooked or, or not boiled uh, in the meat. Uh, and so, uh, you know, blood was, was more related to, again, uh, some of the, the sacrifices that were given to the idols at that time. They would often offer blood. And uh, I, I don't think that anyone was drinking blood at this time, uh, although they did drink blood and people still do drink blood in the occult and so forth. Uh, Satanists and, and, and some of the more primitive peoples thinking they're going to get the power uh, from that animal or even from a human if they drink their blood. Um, but really, those are more health issues, dietary issues from the standpoint of, of not getting sick. Don't eat anything with blood because, you know, it could kill you. you it could be... It could be uh, contaminated. It could make you sick. So you see here, there's nothing about worshiping on the Sabbath day. There's nothing about dietary laws from the standpoint of eating kosher. Uh, and there's nothing about circumcision. And so that settles it. This was settled way back in the early church. God hasn't changed his mind. However, there's still plenty of people out there that tell you, you got to keep a whole bunch of rules and you got to follow a whole bunch of rules from the Old Testament law or you're not saved, and that is wrong. Uh, that is not of God, and it's not biblical. Now, the interesting thing, because this is related primarily, initially the whole argument came up, again, by these Judaizers that were uh, causing dissension because they were Pharisees who had gotten saved, and they were trying to get all the Gentile men to be circumcised. And look, it's a very... A painful thing for a grown man to be circumcised. I mean, you're all women sitting here tonight, but uh, except for <laughs> except for Scott in the back. But I mean, you know, uh, if you've ever had a baby boy and you've had him circumcised, we had three boys. They were all circumcised in the hospital. Uh, it is terrible pain for the child to be circumcised. Uh, imagine a grown man being circumcised, having the foreskin of their penis cut off. Uh, that is a very sensitive part of the body, and uh, you could get infections. You could you could have uh, somebody who's not you know they don't have good eyesight or the you know they don't have a sharp knife, and you could end up with all kinds of physical problems. You could have all kinds of uh, damage that's done, especially in this ancient culture. And so uh, it wasn't it it wasn't a good idea to begin with. I mean, could you imagine? All over the world where people became Christians, if they didn't establish this early on, they'd be following you around with a scalpel, you know, to make sure that they'd find out any men. Let's get them in line. Let's get them in here and circumcise them. Uh, and, and so the, the Lord just de- determined once and for all 
uh, you're not going to be saved by the keeping of the law. You're not going to be saved by works. You're saved by faith, uh, uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The issue of circumcision actually is the idea of cutting away the flesh and being more sensitive to the things of the Spirit. And so we are actually called in the Bible to circumcise our hearts, not to circumcise our flesh. In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, and verse 6, Moses actually says this. He says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. And so from the beginning, circumcision, although it was an outward sign of the children of Abraham, and God instituted it so that it would separate the people of Abraham from all the other peoples of the world, uh, the nation of Israel, uh, it really wasn't about the flesh. It was about the spirit. It was about the heart. And it was uh, some sort of a physical transformation for them that would be a reminder to them all the days of their life, I am a child of God. I'm set apart for God. The flesh has been cut away so that I could be more sensitive toward God as a reminder. Uh, and the, the point was is that God wants our hearts to be loyal to him, to cut away the flesh of our heart uh, so that we would love him and obey him with all of our hearts. In Jeremiah chapter 4, the prophet Jeremiah uh, reiterates later in Israel's history to the children uh, of God and tells them this in Jeremiah 4, verse 3. He says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. You see, you could have the foreskin of your flesh cut off and still be a wicked, evil person. And lots of them were because their hearts weren't tender and sensitive and obedient toward the things of God. And so they thought, well, I'm circumcised, you know, so I'm one of God's kids. I'm one of God's children, one of Abraham's sons. But those are the Pharisees that killed Jesus. Those are the very religious leaders of the Jews who plotted to have Jesus Christ taken, betrayed, and crucified. And yet they were the most legalistic, hyper-religious people among the Jews. But they had no love for God, no real love for God or for people. Uh, they were just filled with themselves and with uh, pride and with greed and covetousness and what they could get from the people and take from the people. And they used God's law uh, as a means uh, to, to, to take uh, what the other people had away from them and basically keep it for themselves. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and we, I think we looked at this last week or the, or the first week that we studied this uh, in Philippians, Philippians 1 or 2, Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one should boast. And that's the great uh, passage of Scripture that the whole Protestant Reformation uh, was based on, in addition to the just shall live by faith uh, uh, that Martin Luther came across, who was the, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic priest and monk and, and, and scribe. Uh, and, and so he realized we're not saved by works. We're not saved by keeping a series of sacraments, rules, or laws. We're saved strictly by grace through faith. That's how we're saved. It is a gift. We didn't do anything for it. We can't earn it. We can't ever pay for it. It's a free gift. We just have to receive it. And it's not of works because if it was of works, then you'd be prideful about your works. That's the problem with works is that we always think we're better than everybody else. We don't compare ourselves to people who are more legalistic than us. We compare ourselves to people less legalistic than us. And then we look down on them and we have pride in ourselves that we're not like them. We're better than them because we do more works than they do. And it's... it's. Uh, it's a tragedy and it's, it's folly, really, that we would go in that direction after God has done so much to us. And guys, there's plenty of Christians out there who are some of the most legalistic, dictatorial tyrants around. And they do it all, you know, by misquoting the scriptures and misapplying the scriptures and twisting the scriptures and putting people under this yoke of bondage. And that is not of God. God set us free from the law. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law so that we don't have to. We just have to continue to follow Jesus and trust in the Lord and allow him to do the work in our heart, circumcise our heart spiritually so that then we could be tender to God and we could have a tender heart toward the Lord and then he could, he could help make us into the image of his son. He could transform us from the inside out and make us like Jesus. So back in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, after he deals with the issue of the Judaizers, these evil workers of the false circumcision, he tells them we're the true circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. We worship in the spirit of God, the glory of Christ. We don't put any confidence in our flesh. Verse 4, he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the confidence in the flesh he says i far more so it, what he's saying is if you want to have a competition of somebody who has qualifications as a legalistic pharisee and qualifications as a a, a, a law keeper and qualifications of pedigree and education he says i'm the best out of all the jewish pharisees and he was he was the best jewish pharisee that there was in Jerusalem and in all of Israel at the time uh, that he got saved. And here's what he says about his pedigree and about uh, his background. He says, verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was the day that uh, God commanded the Jews would circumcise their males, the eighth day. And actually, interesting, that was way back in Moses' time or Abraham's time. I think it was Abraham that God said on the eighth day, circumcise your males. You're talking 4,000 years ago before they knew medical science and so forth, that it's only on the eighth day that the uh, child's blood begins to 
uh, or the child's body begins to produce, I believe it's vitamin K, that causes the coagulation of the blood to where if you had circumcised the, ch the child on the seventh day, they would bleed out. They wouldn't be able to clot. The blood would not clot and they would bleed out and they would die. And so uh, God knows all about that. He knows all about science. And God told them, circumcise your sons on the, on the eighth day. It's the first day that they could be circumcised where their body is able to, uh, to stop the bleeding on its own. So Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the right day. He says, of the nation of Israel, uh, you know, they, they, these uh, Judaizers would go around and say, well, we're Jewish, we're of Israel, and you're a Gentile, and so we're going to tell you how to be because we're, we're the ones that uh, really have all the knowledge and all the information, and you guys are just Gentiles who've been worshiping all these false gods all these centuries. He says, I was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, Benjamin was a very powerful tribe. They were a small tribe, but they were a powerful tribe. Benjamin is where the first king of Israel came from. King Saul was a Benjamite. Uh, Benjamin was one of the two tribes that God uh, basically picked to form after the nation was split in two. The 12 tribes became 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. And the two southern tribes are... are uh, Judah and Benjamin in the south where Jerusalem was in Judah and Benjamin was down there by them uh, and so uh, Benjamin was a very respected tribe and, and a very honored tribe as was as was Judah it's that was the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee and you couldn't get any more uh, legalistic than the Pharisees I mean they knew the law uh, jesus would go on to say uh, you you matthew 23 you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel and uh you know he was he was indicting them about their hypocrisy but they would be so legalistic in that culture that they would not swallow a gnat if they got a gnat in their in their drink and they they went to drink it and a little tiny fly landed in their drink. They would literally, if they swallowed it and they felt that little thing go down their throat, they would literally shove their finger down their throat and make themselves vomit that gnat out of their stomach because they didn't want to eat anything unclean that had not been properly bled. And so they went to these crazy extremes, way beyond what God's law even said, to show how self-righteous they were, how much more pious they were than everyone else. And Jesus says, you know, you gag on a gnat, uh, and yet you swallow a camel. Uh, they would just devour people's wealth. I mean, a camel was how you would travel around with wealth and with spices and things like this in the ancient world. And, and he says, you know, you're, you're willing to devour people's treasure their uh, their their goods you're willing to devour their merchandise and basically make them feel guilty and give it to you so you can you know enrich yourself and tell them oh you're really giving it to god and yet you're going to throw up a, a gnat you know it's it's just total complete hypocrisy and that's what happens with legalistic people they're the biggest hypocrites of all because if they want to uh judge everyone else based on the law well, who's judging them based on the law? Because no one can be saved by keeping the law. There's always laws that we're all breaking all the time. If we want to go back to the writings of Moses, 
And so it, it, is, it, it is, again, uh, it's a tragedy that this would creep into the church. But, you know, men are very prideful, women very prideful, and, and we like to put ourselves over others and, and keep ourselves in a high position above everyone else. And that's what legalism uh, accomplishes. But it really destroys uh, the, the purpose of the cross. Because if, if we could all be saved by our keeping of the law, then what is the point of us having faith in Jesus? What's the point of Jesus dying on the cross uh, for our sins if we could be saved by works? There would be no point for Jesus to die on the cross, if we could, but we can't be saved by our works because none of us will ever perfectly be sinless or keep the law. So he says, a Pharisee, verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And so, you know, he's comparing himself to these other guys because these guys would come up and say, you know, I'm this great, you know, uh, Pharisee, and, and I'm a Christian, but I'm a great Pharisee. Here's my, here's my resume, you know, here's, here's my pedigree. Uh, and, and, and Paul's saying, look, that's nothing compared to me. I was far deeper into this stuff than anyone is, and he was. But his zeal, his passion for the law was such that he went out and killed people. He was the one in Acts chapter 7 who was overseeing the stoning and the killing of the murder of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the early church. And they, it says that the young men who were stoning Stephen to death because of his faith in Jesus Christ were laying their jackets in their coats at Saul's feet. It's interesting, it says Saul was a young man, actually, at that time. It says a young man uh, named Saul. And so Saul's name was later changed to Paul by Jesus but Saul was, he was such a leader among these zealous religious Jews at this time that he didn't have to get his hands dirty. He just got to give the order and stand there. And then the young men carried out the order for him. And he was there in approval as Stephen was stoned to death. And then he went on from there to drag people out of their houses and to chase them down. As a matter of fact, when he went on the road to Damascus, he was heading all the way up to the nation of Syria. That's a long ways even today. If you were to drive through Israel and you were to go all the way from Jerusalem to Syria, it would be a long drive. It would be a long trip for us today in a car. Well, he got papers because he had pretty much annihilated or disseminated the church in Jerusalem. And now he wanted to go and chase the Christians down to the other countries and cities around Israel that they had run to flee to to hide from uh, this persecution. And that's why he went and he got papers from the high priest to go and get permission from the high priest to go and chase down all the Christians in Damascus, Syria, and drag them back literally in chains or ropes uh, to be punished or executed in Jerusalem. So Paul's saying, look, you think you're zealous? You think you're all zealous for the law? You're nothing compared to who I was before I came to Christ. Concerning zeal, I was so zealous, I was persecuting the church. That's how zealous I was for the law. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. No one could accuse Saul of any, of any sin. No one could accuse him of breaking any law. He knew the law, as we read in the book of Romans and throughout the Bible. Uh, Paul knew the law like nobody else. Uh, and he did everything to make sure that he kept the law from the standpoint of appearances so that nobody could ever really 
point out anything that he did. As a matter of fact, it's interesting in the book of Romans that Paul says, uh, I was the one who kept the law. I was the one who perfectly kept the law until the law condemned me when the law says thou shalt not covet, the 10th commandment. He says, and then I realized I'm breaking the law. Because see, that's a secret one. That's not like adultery or murder or lying or stealing or you know putting another god before god or not worshiping on the sabbath or dishonoring your father and your mother so basically all the other of the ten commandments paul could say you can't accuse me of not keeping these first nine commandments but the tenth commandment was a was a sin of the heart covetousness jealousy wanting something that someone else had and and i believe paul was probably referring to the fact that he was jealous of jesus he was coveting what Jesus had. And that's why he was so fiercely persecuting the early church, trying to stamp it out. Because what Jesus had, he did not have, uh, which was the love uh, of God and the power of God uh, in his life. So he's saying from outward appearances, no one could accuse me. I was blameless. Verse 7, he continues, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of his pedigree, all of his training, uh, education taught by the greatest theologian, Jewish theologian, Gamaliel of the time. He was the top student of this top theologian in Israel at this time, we're told, uh, in, uh, in another book of the Bible and in the New Testament. And uh, so he's saying, all of this, all that I had, all that I did, my, my upbringing, you know, my, my disciplines, my zeal, he says, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so he's saying I may have lost my position. I may have even lost my freedom. I'm going to probably lose my head. He was probably disowned by his family. He was most likely married. Otherwise, he would not have been allowed to be a Pharisee in that culture at that time. He clearly lost his wife because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he tells everybody he's single. He wouldn't have been single if he was a Pharisee. So it's most likely he was disowned by her family, by her, and by his family when he became a Christian and became a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, he had you know, a, a great reputation among the Jews. Uh, now they hated him. The religious Jews were trying to track him down and kill him everywhere that he went. These, these, these religious uh, zealots from Israel, from Jerusalem, would be out hunting for him trying to get him in trouble with the Romans and so forth. And uh, so he's saying, all the stuff that I, that, that I had, uh, I count all those things to be lost when compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. He lost everything. He lost, he lost everything. He's sitting in a prison about to get beheaded. He lost everything. And yet he is trying to encourage us to rejoice in the Lord. He's trying to encourage these, uh, these men and women in this church to keep their eyes on Jesus. 
He says, I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And many of you know that that word could be translated as animal dung or as discarded food scraps is what that word literally means. So he's saying all that stuff that I used to think was was worthy and was marvelous and that I used to be very proud of, I count it as animal dung now. I, I count it as, as discarded food scraps in a, in, in a trash pile. It's trash to me compared to gaining Christ. Verse 9, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Again, the just shall live by faith. My righteous ones shall live by faith. God says. And so it's not a righteousness of my own. If I think that I'm righteous, really what I am is prideful. If I think I'm holy, I'm prideful. I'm not holy. None of us are holy. Only God is holy. If I think I'm good, I'm prideful because there's none good. No one does good and no one seeks after God. Only God is good. Only Jesus is good. And so once you understand that, my righteousness is nothing. My righteousness is like filthy rags, the Bible says, before the holiness of God. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is the whole point. Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account. This is what the New Testament says. When you put faith in Christ, your sins are washed away. All your sins are washed away, past, present, and future. Now you still have to live your life out. You still have to get through this world and, and make it all the way you know, through this life. But we're not saved by our righteousness. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by following Jesus, by continuing to abide in Christ. By, by just taking one step after another, following Jesus, taking his hand and letting him lead us all the way through till he takes us into heaven through the straight gate and through the narrow road that leads to life. It's a hard road. It's a narrow road. There's not many that find it, uh, but it is the road that leads to life. And we get our, not just our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we get the righteousness of Christ imputed to us or credited to us. And so Jesus, who was perfect and who is righteous, the only righteous man who's ever lived, he gives us his righteousness, the Bible says, and we are then robed or clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I have no righteousness of my own, but when I receive Christ, when I follow Christ, when I surrender my life to Christ, then his righteousness is given to me, and that's the righteousness that Paul is talking about here. It's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And so how can I boast about it? How could I take credit for it? I can't take credit for anything. Anything good in my life, God gets the credit for it. He says in verse 10, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So the main thing is knowing Jesus. And once you know Jesus, you get it all. You get, you, you get your sins forgiven. You become uh, righteous in God's sight because you're robed in the righteousness of Christ. And he says, uh, uh, not just knowing him, but the power of his resurrection, the resurrection power 
of Jesus Christ. Again, that Jesus conquered death. Jesus rose from the grave. And then the Spirit of Christ dwells within us through the person of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we have that power within us uh, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the power of His resurrection. And then he says the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, that doesn't sound like a good thing to us. You know, suffering, you know, Jesus suffered a lot. Jesus suffered more than any man, the scriptures say. And and so we really don't like that part of it. We don't want to suffer. But Paul was happy to suffer for Jesus. He says, I've entered into fellowship with Jesus through my suffering because Jesus Christ suffered. And so they would consider it an honor to suffer for Jesus in their, in their day. You know, they, they thought it was a privilege to get taken and get beaten uh, with rods or with whips or be thrown into a dungeon. They would sing in the dungeon because they, were, they felt honored and privileged that they would be able to suffer for Christ's sake after Jesus suffered so much for their sakes. And he says, even being conformed to his death, in order that I I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul the Apostle knew a lot about suffering. He suffered really tremendously in the early church, suffered more than anyone else in the record, uh, at least in the New Testament, of of the early church. Matter of fact, when Jesus called him, uh, Jesus said, I'm going to show him um, all the things that that Paul is going to suffer for my sake, Jesus said. And, and indeed, he did suffer many things uh, for Jesus' sake, in, in addition to losing everything, his family and his credibility and his reputation and his freedom and all the rest, his physical body. He lost his eyesight to where he was practically blind at one point. He couldn't even really read or write. He had to write in big letters, we're told. And um, likely as a result of one of the times that he was stoned uh, and, and, and left for dead, we read in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he is now going to compare his suffering and uh, you know, what he's been through to, again, these, these Judaizers, these religious uh, Jewish Christians who were trying to put a, uh, a legalistic works trip on the church. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 20. He says, For you will bear with anyone... If he enslaves you, that's what putting us under the law is, is putting us under bondage and making us slaves of the law. He says, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face, you're willing to bear, bear them, but you're not willing to bear what I'm telling you. Basically, he says, verse 21, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, like they really are serving Christ, he's saying. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in the danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the deep of the ocean. 
I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, those would be the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, those would be the non-Jews, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me concerning all the churches. And so he's trying to say, you know, you're, you're, this church is willing to listen to any Yahoo that comes up and says he's speaking for God, and then he's going to put this legalistic uh, works trip on them. And he's saying, you know, um, but you won't listen to me, Paul the Apostle. Let, let's compare uh, resumes between me and these guys. See how much they've suffered for Jesus' sake. See what they've been through for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. Um, and there was no comparison, of course. But Paul the Apostle, he suffered tremendously for his faith. Really, pretty much his whole ministry, he was, it was a ministry of him uh, running you know, for his life. You know, every city he'd go to, he'd preach. There'd either be you know, a, a revival or, or there would be a revolt that would take place everywhere. Sometimes there was a revival and there was a revolt where he would preach. Uh, and and you know, they had to slip him out of the city over a wall in a basket and things like that, because they were going to kill him. And, uh, and, and eventually the Romans did kill him for his faith. He was martyred. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, you know, in really continuing the same thought, uh, about his suffering. He says this in verse uh, 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. He says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power, or God is saying for my power, is perfected in weakness, or in your weakness, uh, Paul. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is something that Paul could speak on because you just read what he suffered in the last chapter. Not only did he suffer all these things that he uh, listed for them in chapter 11, but in chapter 12, he says that because he had such this, this incredible revelation of heaven given to him from God that he describes in verses 1 to 6, he says that a, a, a demon was sent to him, a messenger of Satan, a satanic demon was sent to him to torment him, to uh, basically uh, give him a thorn in his flesh, to hurt him. And he never had any relief from this attack of the enemy in his flesh. And, and, and you know, he says he prayed, he asked God three times to take this away, and instead of God taking away the thorn in the flesh, instead of God, you know, removing the enemy who was sent to attack him, 
God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, got it, Lord, then bring it on. Bring on more weakness. Bring on more suffering. Because if suffering and distresses and persecutions uh, and difficulties make me stronger, then bring it on, Lord, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it's not your strength, it's the strength of Christ that is lifting you up and keeping you on your feet. The power of God revealed to you oftentimes when your own power has completely failed you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so what's the value of affliction, suffering affliction? Well, if you turn to Christ, he comforts you in your affliction. And then once you've been comforted by God in your affliction, then you can comfort others in their affliction. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about others, being others-minded and about the body of Christ. And if we're all being just concerned with ourselves and we're all just myopic and focused on ourselves, uh, this isn't going to happen. Then we're all just going to have a pity party and feel sorry for ourselves all the time. And then everybody will feel sorry for themselves and you know nobody will be comforted. But if we comfort others and, and they comfort us, that is how God uh, brings comfort through affliction and empathy and, and people coming alongside you because you came alongside others uh, and they're going to come alongside you or vice versa. Uh, and then we are one body and we are uh, comforted in our afflictions. Back in verse 11, he says, <clears throat> in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may, I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So he says, all of this uh, death and suffering and, and, and things that I suffer, he says, um, it's all for a good reason. It's because I want Jesus. I want to lay hold uh, of Jesus and I, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. That's my end goal. Not this life, not this body, not this world, the world to come. Not this body, this body's going to die. The resurrected body. That's what his focus was. And he says, I haven't, I haven't obtained it yet. I, I haven't become perfect. And if Paul the Apostle wasn't made perfect uh, when he was on the earth, none of us can be made perfect because he was about as righteous as you get as a human being in the church and uh, suffered probably more than anyone else besides Jesus in the church. And, um, and so, it, you know, there, there are churches out there that teach uh, that you could be perfect, perfectly sanctified in the flesh in this life if you're just really holy and you're really uh, right. You'd be surprised if I told you what doctrine that is of what church. Uh, I don't know if they still hold to that doctrine. They used to, but I won't mention their names. But... Um, you know, they, they, they would teach in others that you could become perfectly sinless as a Christian. And that's not true. None of us are ever perfect or sinless. We're always going to be sinners as long as we're living in this body uh, and in this world. Even Paul didn't claim to be sinless or perfect. 
Verse 13, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, I, I, I'm not done pressing ahead yet. You know, even though I'm locked up in prison, he's still writing letters from prison after all that he suffered. He's going to die. He, he's already talking about his death more and more because it's, it's pretty much, unless God, you know, does a miracle and gets him out, he's going to be killed as a martyr, which he was. Um, but he says, I'm still pressing ahead for Jesus. I'm still writing letters that are going to encourage the church and here we are, 2,000 years later, still writing the reading the letters that he wrote, and we're still being encouraged by Paul uh, because he did not stop. He just kept pressing ahead all the way to the end until he, till he ran through uh, the finish line, until he, he broke the tape of the finish line and his race was finished. Part of it is, he says, something I have to do, I have to forget the things of the past. And that is a, that is a key if you ever want to mature as a Christian. Uh, if you want to remain a baby Christian all your life, then, then, then just get hung up on your past. And you could be stuck in your past forever, you know? And you'll, you'll never mature as a Christian. You'll never grow up as a Christian. And you're always going to be, you know, just, uh, you know, held down by the things of your past. We all have a past, guys. We all have things bad that happened to us. We all have dysfunctional families, and we all had messed up childhoods. None of us had a perfect childhood. There is no such thing as a perfect childhood. If you think you had a perfect childhood, you're just not remembering your childhood anymore. You've, you, you've created a fantasy world of your childhood because there is no perfect, you know, life. And uh, there's no perfect parents. And, and so, and, and some of us, you know, have harder journeys than others and more dysfunctional families than others, but it's all relative. There's someone who had a worse childhood than I did. And there's someone who had a worse childhood than they did. And so you just have to forget the things of the past. You can't dwell on the things of the past. You have to push forward. You have to move on in Christ. Sometimes you have to deal with your past. Sometimes your past comes up. Sometimes you have to answer for things you did in your past. Even as a Christian, there's still responsibility. We have to take for things we did in our past, and we shouldn't shy away from that. If we've hurt somebody in our past, deal with it. Make it right. If we've offended somebody, uh, make it right. So much as it depends on you, seek to be at peace with all men, Paul would say. But don't get hung up on your past. There's people in counseling and therapy, and they deal with when they were five years old, and they're in counseling for 50 years, talking to a therapist for 50 years, every week for an hour, paying good money to a psychologist to talk about what happened to them when they were five. Come on. I mean, you just lost 50 years of your life because you can't get over what happened to you when you were five. So it's very sad, actually. It's very sad. And it's sad when Christians get stuck there in our past. Because we don't have to. Verse 15 says, Let us therefore, as many as are mature, or it could be translated perfect, but it's probably mature is a better understanding of the word. None of us are perfect. Have this attitude, and if anything, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. In other words, don't go backwards in your walk with Christ. None of us have arrived. There's always going to be somebody 
further along than you in their faith, more mature than you in their faith, you know, more godly than you in their walk. And, and, and so that's okay. We're all on a different journey. Just deal with yourself. Deal with your issues every day. Put God first every single day. You're obviously here on a Thursday night because you want to put God first. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here on a Thursday night. I commend you for that. Uh, but, but keep living that same standard to what you've attained. Don't go backwards. Don't backslide in your faith. Maintain where you are, what God has done in your life, where he's taken you from, where he's put you now, and keep pressing ahead like Paul the Apostle said. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so basically he would say this another way at another time. He would say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Don't follow people who aren't following Jesus. That's a, they're going to lead you to a bad place, even if they claim to be Christians, even if it's in a church setting. If they don't have the love of Christ, if they're not those who are filled with God's love and his, uh, his heart and his compassion and his mercy, no matter how much Bible they can quote or how much scripture they know or how pious they seem to be, don't follow them because you don't want to end up like them, a legalistic, self-righteous uh, Pharisee looking down your nose at everybody else. Um, but if you see people following Jesus, in humility, you know, in love, in kindness, and these are the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you, if, you, if you see that in people, that's a rare treasure. That's the one that you should hang out with. That's the one that you should learn from. That's the example uh, that you should follow. Verse 18, For many walk of, often, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So Paul is, you know, he says, I've told you this many times, even in tears and weeping. I'm so concerned for you. He's weeping for the church about these people that are coming into the church who are leading people astray. And he says their end is destruction. Their God is not Jesus Christ. Their God is their flesh, their appetites of their flesh. Uh, and, and they glory in the stuff that should be shameful to them. They're glorying, they're boasting in their, uh, in their shame. Uh, and, and they set their minds on things of this earth, not on things of heaven. And that's the key, guys. We should be focused on eternal things focused on the things that matter to God from his word in the New Testament, primarily. Um, and, and, uh, and, and as we do that, then we are, you know, we have the mind of Christ. But if we put our minds on the things of this world, on earthly things, on money and, and stuff and, you know, power and pleasure and all these things and position and influence and the things that the world goes after, um, we're no different than the people in the world. Verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body <clears throat> of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to 
himself. And so the idea is keep your eyes on heaven, not on earthly things, but the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. We're no longer citizens of this world. We are sojourners. We're travelers. We're, we're, we're like tent campers. We're just, we're just living temporarily in this world. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, we're supposed to be ambassadors to this world for Jesus. We're supposed to be representing Jesus to this world. But don't get too comfortable. Don't, don't, don't take too much of this world with you because it'll bog you down and trip you up. Travel light through this world because you don't know how much time you have. You know, there's been plenty of times that I've talked to a group of people and the next time uh, we've gotten together, uh, they're not here anymore. They're in a hospital. And then the next thing I know, they're gone and they're with the Lord. And so it's, there's no guarantee that we're going to be here tomorrow. We're going to get another week, another day, another month, another year. So let's keep our focus on heaven. Amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at C-O-A-H podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.